welcome to the next episode of Let's Talk PND. My name is Talia and each episode I aim to bring you heartfelt stories from parents about their journey with postnatal anxiety and depression. If you have a story you'd like to share, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So let's get stuck into this week's episode. Everybody and welcome to the next episode of Let's Talk PND. Today I have Jenna with me. Um, Jenna has is a mum of a beautiful little boy, Henry, who was born um, in the public system, and they she lives out at Harvey Bay in um, Queensland. So we have got a very interesting story to share today, and I just wanted to give everybody a little heads up that it was quite traumatic for Jenna and she has suffered some PTSD from her birth. So if you feel like this is not an episode for you to listen to, then now's the time to skip through. But also it's really important, I think, even for Jenna's recovery to talk about this um, story. So I'll say hello to Jenna. Welcome. Thank you for coming on and Hi, sharing. Thanks for, having- oh, sorry. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So we did talk, you know, a little bit before we started recording about your your journey and it's um it's quite quite hectic. But do you want to start with a little bit about you and your family and a little bit about Henry and that sort of thing? Of course. Um so I live in the beautiful sunny Harvey Bay, um, whale capital of Australia, I like to say. Um, My husband David and I have just um, had our first wedding anniversary. Um, He works away in the mining industry, so Henry and I spend a lot of one-on-one time together. Um, We're currently living with my parents while we build our first home. Um, And um, I think, as I was saying earlier, we've been living with my parents a little bit longer than anticipated due to the delay in the building industry, but we're super-duper lucky to be able to have a house, I think, in the first place. Um, yeah, Henry just turned two. Um, he's one of the happiest, most beautiful, healthiest children I could have asked for. So I'm very lucky in that aspect. Yeah. Was he a was he a I don't say easy newborn, but was he a, you know, was he pretty, pretty good? He was amazing. I actually probably couldn't ask have asked for a better baby, especially considering how I was. Um, mentally and physically after having the birth um, he was tremendous um, and again with my husband working away I was with alone with him a lot and yeah it was it was actually pretty easy so he's he's pretty great yeah no that's really good after hearing your story that's that's awesome <laughs> um, and so let's talk about your birth story so mm-hmm. um, start off with so I think the first thing we talked about was that you had gone to 42 weeks that's sort of where things started yeah and were you given the option of going further or was that sort of your cutoff at 42 weeks yeah the midwives so the midwifery program I was a part of had basically sort of set a date and said this is as far as we're going to let it go um health wise and I took their word on that that's that's yep. fine yeah cool and so how did the the process start so you you got to 42 weeks and then you're booked in for your induction so how did how did that start um so I was booked in on a Monday morning at 8 30 so that was I thought that's pretty great straight in off the bat um went up to the hospital checked in did everything we were supposed to do I was shown to my room I had my own private room which again I thought was I was really lucky um at that point they said we're going to take you through and do the cervidal induction I think it's called with the tape 
Um, yep. And then that that gets left in for 24 hours. Um, unfortunately, over that 24 hours, literally nothing happened for me. So um, do you want me to just keep going with yep. what happened? Yep. Yeah, cool. Okay, yep. so then basically um, the following morning at about 9 a.m., they just came back in and said, nothing has changed, so we're going to take you through now and we're going to try um, the induction with the gel. Um, and they basically sort of said this can, they, I think they leave it in for up to six hours at that point. So my husband had arrived with my breakfast. We were being taken through to a birthing suite to have the gel and um, the doctor came in and I was laying there quite relaxed and then he, I just sort of felt this gush and he said, oh, that worked and he had broken my waters. So at no point was there, um, you know, had we had a conversation that he was going to do that. I thought I still had six hours up my sleeve. So that was my first experience of sort of having the control just taken away from me that then there was just like zero communication from the doctor at that point. So um, and my contractions started immediately at that point. Um, so I'm just I'm having a bit of a think now. Um, so basically after my waters broke, contractions just kept going. Um, you know, I did all the normal things, moved around the room, got in the shower, did everything that was sort of um, normal, I guess. Um, and and for me now, thinking back, it's very there's very there's moments I forget, but the I remember saying from the very beginning that I didn't want any, I didn't want to be administered any morphine. Don't offer it to me, and I didn't want the forceps included in the delivery at all. Um, so one of the memories I still have is that I was laying on my side and the doctor said to me, I really want to give you morphine. I think that you need morphine. He was very persistent at this point. And to be honest with you, I was so weak and I was just in this moment of vulnerability and I just went, okay. And that proceeded to just make me violently ill. And I knew that that's the reaction that morphine has. It makes me violently ill. So I then proceeded to just sort of vomit from then on in. Um, the next memory I have is my midwife, um, making a note that my son's heart rate had dropped. And by this point, I'd had an epidural. Um, they, she sort of said his heart rate's dropping and everything just went from zero to 100 in that, in that aspect. Um, she, and she made a point to say to the doctor, she needs to push, the baby's in distress. And he said, not yet. And then all of a sudden he sort of went, you've got to push, you've got to push. And I think I pushed about three times. And then um, he got the vacuum and attached it to my son's head. And all I remember from that was that he suddenly, there was this big pop and he just, the doctor sort of went flying and the vacuum had broken away from my son's head and actually taken part of his scalp with it. Um, and then he just got the forceps and ripped, pulled my son out. But sorry, just prior to that, I remember my mum saying to him, are you going to give her an episiotomy? And he said, she doesn't need it pulled my son out with the forceps, he wasn't breathing, cut the umbilical cord, so my husband missed out on that experience. He was, my son was immediately taken away um, and then it was a little bit quiet at that point. The doctor did make mention that he would be suturing. Um, that sort of happened and then um, the next memory I had was being taken into the NICU where my son was and he was on his belly with a little sign on his crib saying please be careful my head hurts because he had this massive ring of skin missing from his scalp so he was obviously I mean as a newborn you handle with care but he was you know extra careful did he have um, much hair like it did it take hair with it or he'd have no um, head sort of 
yeah, he didn't really have a lot of hair, really come to think of it. Um, so he'd had taken like a layer of skin off his head. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like the photos I have, um, like the very first photo I have of me and my child is my husband sort of taken it over my shoulder because I'm laying down in a bed still um, and you can't miss it. There's just this massive and he's still like he's two and there's patches on his head where his hair won't grow because of the scarring. Oh, um gosh. Yeah, so I have all these, you know, like the very first pictures I have of him, he's just got these big <laughs> bits of skin missing on his scalp. But um, And then uh, it was about, I think that was about 4 a.m. I got to meet him for the first time. I got taken back into my room. Everyone went home, you know, the whole thing sort of calmed down. Um, at about 6 a.m. I remember waking up in the most excruciating pain that I think I said to you before, I thought I was having another baby and everyone had missed it. Yeah. Um, and the same doctor that had delivered my son, they've called him into the room and he was just standing at the end of my bed with his hands on his hips, sort of not really doing too much. And I was begging him. I kept saying, like, help me, please help me. And at that point I was hemorrhaging and they wheeled me into a birth, back into the birthing suite. And I remember the midwife, I think it was a midwife, could have been a nurse, just saying to me, you need to call somebody. So she handed me my mobile phone that she fetched from my room. And I, first person I just got was my dad. And I remember just ringing my dad saying, they're taking me back into surgery. And I must think what my dad got at six o'clock when he got that phone call from me. So, um, yeah. Were and then inside your uterus. So you were I just, believe, I were think just so. clots inside yeah. your uterus that was just, yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. So and this is the information, like I know it's all sitting there in my records and I've requested my medical records from the maternity ward here, but I haven't had the guts to go and pick them up and read them yet. So, um, but yeah, so that happened. So I was wheeled away into surgery and um, came back out and I then obviously was, was bed bound for a couple of days. I had to have four blood transfusions in the two or three days following to kind of regain all that back. Um do you know and how much you lost? Did they did they mention to you? Did not not to me, yeah. no. And that's what I mean. That's kind of there's information that I'd like to know. I think knowledge is power. And I think yep. so I definitely um, want to go and get those records just to have a bit of an idea. But you know, when they say to me four blood transfusions, they said to me that it's going to take 12 months in blood donations for me to be able to give back what mm -hmm. I used in those two days. Like it was extraordinary, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, four blood transfusions and and my aftercare from my midwives was, like I said, phenomenal. I, I couldn't, I can't fault them. Like they, there was so much care and, um, yeah, it was, it was, that was, that was pretty great. Um, so um, the following day they came, or two days later, my apologies, they came in at about 4 a.m. and said to me, can you um, come and feed your son he had quite bad jaundice so they would bring him into my room but he would have to lay under the blue light so I still couldn't um I missed out on a lot of contact with him in those first few days if I wanted to see him I had to request to be wheeled in my bed around to the to the NICU to see him and um and midwife escorted as well because you would have been on yeah or, yeah and on your transfusion all that stuff yeah, so even if I was there with him, that was probably the only time. If he was with me in my room, he was in that little crib under the blue light, so there wasn't a lot of contact anyway. But so on the Friday at 4 a.m., they came in and said, you know, can you come with us? We need you to come and feed him um, in the NICU. And when I got there, the doctors were all standing over him and had 
proceeded to tell me that they believed that he had a twisted testicle and he needed to be flown to Brisbane immediately. Um, so I called my mum. I'm still, I don't think I ever stopped crying for that first week because I feel like every time I started to feel a little bit better, something else would happen. But I remember ringing my mum and, you know, she came up to the hospital about 5 a.m. And at that point I was so exhausted. I was just asleep in the chair in the NICU. So I ended up going back to my room and my mum sat there and waited um, and it turns out he wasn't flown to Brisbane until 11 a.m. that morning. Um, he, as you, you might be aware, the flight from Harvey Bay to Brisbane is actually only 45 minutes. So he was in Brisbane and in the in the other hospital. I think he was at the MARTA by about 12, 12.30, and they'd already determined that it was just a little bit of extra fluid around his testicle and he was perfectly fine. Um, and then unfortunately due to the... Um, the way that the Royal Flying Doctors run with newborns, they had no available flights to get him home and he wasn't returned back to Harvey Bay until 3 o'clock on the Sunday. So he was gone for nearly 48 hours while I was stuck in the maternity ward at the hospital because they wouldn't discharge me. Um, I had no baby and... Um, you said they denied your parents going for a drive to pick him up. Yeah, so they actually were already in, they had left Harvey Bay and they were in Gympie, which is about an hour and a half from Harvey Bay, when they were told, um, nope, it's fine, you can't pick him anyway, pick him up anyway, we're going to bring him back. So my parents thought, cool, they're going to bring him back. They returned, came back to Harvey Bay. That was all done Friday afternoon. So all day Saturday I'm just in maternity ward waiting. Um, I was allowed to call the ward where he was in Brisbane and speak to the nurses um, and I think at that point like my the fact that you know two days old my son <clears throat> was now being fed with um, formula like he was now formula fed so um, again another sort of choice taken away from me um, and then yeah he came uh, by Sunday morning I think I'd had enough and mentally I was absolutely broken I'd, I'd nothing left I couldn't actually even talk to anybody um so I discharged with my mum and dad I said I'm out <laughs> Sunday morning left the hospital we went back at three o'clock and picked up my son and he came home with us so yeah what was it like getting home um even just I remember I'm just gonna have a sip of water <laughs> sorry um I even remember on Sunday being at my parents because we'd already left the hospital and my mum got the call saying we're putting him on the plane he's coming home at that point, I just, it was like this overwhelming relief. It was the weirdest feeling. It was like the best day of my whole life having this phone call. Um, but as soon as we got into the hospital, the actual, like, head of the maternity ward went out to get him. She went out to the airport to get him to make sure that he was brought back, like, I don't know, safely or whatever. She was pretty great. Um, and the minute they sort of brought him in, I think they did a few checks on him and I put him straight into it into the crib and wheeled him out and we were gone I there was sort of I was not giving anybody an opportunity to try and keep us there for anything longer than needed so yeah when you great. went home did you just soak up those moments and do as much skin to skin as you could yeah at first um it was it was almost like I I, I was finally able to just relax so I remember coming into my mum and dad's into the lounge room and I put just put sort of put him in his bouncer on the floor and I just sat on the couch and just stared at him for a while because it was finally my opportunity to kind of go it's okay I'm safe he's safe everybody's okay because until that point 
I had no idea what was going to happen next. So every day for the last seven days, it was so unpredictable and so many things went wrong um, that that was finally my chance to kind of go, okay, we're home, it's safe, it's finished. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it wasn't. Um, that was the start of um, the longest journey I've ever had to endure. Um, physically for me, I couldn't stand um, for a longer than a couple of minutes. So I missed out on being able to give my son his first bath. My mother had to do it because I couldn't stand up to do that for him. Um, it took me a couple of weeks to leave the house because I just couldn't stand for long periods of time due to the pressure from um, the injuries I sustained from the birth. So mm-hmm. I had quite a bit of tearing that has taken a long time for me to recover from. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking that it was your degree of tear was misdiagnosed as well. Yeah. So I um, had second and third degree tearing, which they completely acknowledged in the hospital. Um, but I was quite adamant that I had additional tearing to my um, clitoris. And um, I was, I'm not going to say, I think I said it before, but I don't want to say I was fogged off, but no one acknowledged when I said to them, like, there's this great amount of pressure and I'm in this, in a lot of pain. Um, I ended up going to my GP um, briefly after having my son and he actually just took a photo and said, yeah, here and here. So on top of the second and third degree tearing, I had two tears to my clitoris, which he said he's heard of but never seen. Um, and and that, they're painful. They're in such a sensitive area. Yeah, so even, you know, it's two years later and I'm, I still have checkups with a gynecologist because of the nerve damage in that area um so and I mean at the end of the day I completely understand that you know there's probably not you know a band-aid to fix that but the fact that I and then had to seek additional medical advice after from my GP just to get that validity of going yeah I really wasn't making it up like there was some pain there and so he was prescribing me pain meds because I was it was excruciating I couldn't I couldn't sit to breastfeed my son so seven days in I was I had given up breastfeeding because mentally and physically I couldn't do it. I couldn't breastfeed. And so when I think back, it's so heartbreaking to think I failed immediately as a mum because I wasn't able to do the one thing that we kind of is almost expected. But it's taken me the longest time to realise that he's healthy. So I, I didn't really fail as a mum because he still got fed and and he's okay. <laughs> yeah. And all the things that you went through as a new mum to keep him safe and advocate for him and all that stuff that makes you a good mum not Mm. the breastfeeding side of things that part was you feeding him and making sure that he was fed Um, and everything else unfortunately was out of your control so yeah (laughs) yeah and that's the that's what I'm starting to learn such a long time later is that the the PTSD and and the the struggles I've had mentally was from the fact that I'd completely lost control of the situation I was in I had no not lost it it was taken away from me um literally from the minute I arrived like yep the first 24 hours I was aware of what was happening but the minute that I was taken in on that second day the control was completely taken away from me at that point and then the saddest thing as well as it was taken away from my husband he missed out on a lot of that experience as well because he just thought okay, we've got to do what they're telling us we've got to do. Yeah. Um, and I've learned now that sometimes, don't we, we miss out on what, what they're feeling like and yeah. the experience is like for them. Yeah. And he said it to me, he said, you know, like because, you know, I sort of said to him, I don't want to go into it with this great birth plan because um, 
you know, I feel like that's when things could go wrong. Um, but he even said to me, I feel like I failed you because he ended up using the forceps and he gave me morphine. And But in that moment, my husband thought he was doing what was best for me. Um, so it was quite sad for me to hear that experience afterwards that he thought he had failed me. Mm. And in a way you did have birth preferences, like you had a plan, you had you were open to everything else, but you specifically didn't want two things. So yep. I still think in a way that's a birth you know, we talk, like to call them birth preferences because it was your preference not to have a forceps, it was your preference yeah. not to have morphine. So, um, yeah, so I guess that's that you did have a plan. You had obviously done your research and there was a reason why you didn't want forceps and there was a reason why you didn't want morphine. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, keep going. You keep going. Oh, no, I was, sorry, that was just that's just making me laugh like it's oh. you're absolutely right it's a, it's a yeah. yeah preference I sort of just was adamant about not having a birth plan but it turns out I kind of guess I did <laughs> yeah yeah even if it's only small and there's only a couple of things to it um yeah. and I really I really advocate for birth preferences because um obviously you know you, you can be flexible with them but I think it's important it means that you've done your research and it means that you you know what you would prefer or what you do and don't want and it helps us to be able to guide you through your birth as well so um definitely definitely helpful I'm a big advocate for them um so how did your PTSD get diagnosed did you see a psychologist or was it your GP so what happened with that diagnosis so over the last so sort of 18 months after my son was born, I tried to, you know, regain some normality. I just, you know, we, we had his first Christmas and everything was really beautiful. And at about the five-month mark, we moved to Emerald in Western Queensland, again, for my husband's work. And everything was going really great. I, we, had, we had a really amazing friend that nannied for us. Um, and I got to go back to work. And this was right before COVID. And Henry was diagnosed with whooping cough. Um, we actually went, yeah, we went through when he was about five months old. He just got really, it was it was really awful. So, yeah, we went through hooping cough was about five months old and then COVID hit and I lost my job and was, was at home a lot with him, which was okay. It wasn't really me, but, you know, you adapt and I got to spend more time with him. Um, but I, re- I was always angry for no reason. I just, you know, I was always mad at my husband for absolutely no reason and the smallest things would, would, would really anger me. And then we chose to come back to Harvey. Bay. I was offered a really great job opportunity. We came back to Harvey Bay. Um, Henry went into full-time daycare and I went into full-time work thinking this is the normal thing to do. Um, and I immediately went downhill from there. Everything was too much. Everything was stressful. Everything made me really irrationally angry. I couldn't handle loud noises, but at that point, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, geez, this is really irritating loud noises. Um, I remember having a Melbourne Cup day at the venue where I worked and I kept having to leave the loud, um, crowded spaces, which wasn't me. I've been an event manager in my past in a room of a thousand people. You know what I mean? It's not me. Um, I was in the military in a past life. So, you know, gunfire and things like like that were always exhilarating. It wasn't overwhelming. So, um, but most recently this year, I found myself, crying a lot and getting really irrationally angry and I actually had a panic attack I was in my car um just driving to pick Henry up nothing had triggered it 
and I had no idea what was going on because it had never happened to me before. Um, and I rang my younger sister who is just phenomenal and she sort of talked me down. And at that point I thought, this is it's not okay. Whatever's happening, it's not okay. And I actually sought help through my boss who again is phenomenal. I've got some great support around me and she sorted me through my EAP, um, my employee assistance program. And I was introduced to a psychotherapist. I started seeing her and she sort of quickly said to me, I can't, I don't think I can help what you need. And that really, I sort of sort of thought to myself, I don't know what you're talking about. She had me fill out some questionnaires and she said to me, I think you're suffering from PTSD. Um, I was then referred to a psychiatrist for a diagnosis. Yeah, And that's actually only happened in the last two months, that stage of seeing a psychotherapist and then a, a psychiatrist. And the whole concept of PTSD to me was, it just wasn't there. It, was, it wasn't something I um, imagined would happen to me and especially not from having a baby. Yeah. Did so. they think, do they think that the loud noises and the things that triggered anger for you did it bring back some sort of memory from birth or some sort of thing that you heard or um, saw or something like that? Is that how it's related? I, so what the psychotherapist had originally said to me was that she just believed it was because I'd completely lost control. Oh, sorry, we're there, there again. It was my control was taken from yeah. me. So I was left in this really vulnerable situation where I just kind of had to go along for the ride. Um and like so it's funny because I'd forgotten all of these things and then when I was sitting in these therapy sessions I kept going oh god like and it was triggering uh like um I had another panic attack in a therapy session because I was having flashbacks so no one can tell me why it's taken why two years later I'm having panic attacks and flashbacks but what they seem to think is because I haven't delved into it so over the last two years, someone, you know, I briefly discussed what happened to me with somebody, but I immediately get so overwhelmed emotionally that I can't continue talking and it stops. Yeah. Whereas with the therapy, I'm just, I'm delving into it a bit more and I'm discussing it. So therefore it's opening up all of these memories that I didn't realize were there and all of these events that I don't remember happening. And, um, but it's actually been the most phenomenal thing that I've done, which was reach out and get help. Um, because this whole time I just thought I'm a new mom and being a mom because you're a kid. And no, I'm learning that everything I'm feeling is because I went through this really awful experience and I didn't deal with it when I should have. And I get really, you know, now when someone has a baby and there's that photo of them laying in the birthing suite with the baby on the chest. I just get really angry because I missed out on that. And um, I feel like I was really deprived of this experience that like for no other reason than neglect I should have had. Yeah. 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 Oh, gosh. And I just firmly believe to this day that had I just been left alone with my midwives, I think it would have been a very different outcome. I I am so firmly believe, like, believe that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you need any medication for your like mental health journey or did you get through with, um, if, you know, seeing counsellors and things like that? Yeah, I've tried to stay away from medication. It's not, you know, maybe a little bit down the track, but at the moment I think I'm doing really well. I've, I've gone back to part-time work. I've, I just wasn't able to sustain working full-time 
um, and having my son. And I work in an environment where, um, unfortunately, we can be yelled at every day by our clientele. It's just the environment that we're in and that, that's okay. But um, it was getting to a point where I was going to my boss every day crying and I was either going to quit my job or, or and again, phenomenal, phenomenal employer. But, um, yeah, so I've gone back to part-time and I'm finding a little bit more me time. And my psychotherapist actually gave me some phenomenal um, metaphors, I guess, if you want to say that. And when I said to her about thinking that it was all going to be okay, she said to me, you can only hold a beach ball underwater for so long and that's going to erupt. And then when I sort of said to her um, the way I was feeling and the mum guilt because I was constantly crying and she said to me, you have to think about when a plane, this is a terrible way to start it, but she said when a plane's going down, they say to you to put the oxygen on yourself first before you can help somebody else. Yep. She said that to me. She said, you need to be able to put oxygen on yourself before you can help your son. And I just think that's amazing. Like I need to take care of myself because my poor kid can't just sit in the room with his mother, like crying consistently. It's not a healthy environment. Yeah. So it's, it's actually been one of the, I just think I was so stubborn for such a long time thinking that it was all quite normal and I should just be able to get on with life and, no, I genuinely needed a lot of mental, um, a lot of support in that aspect. Yeah, I think it's quite common. I mean, I know I went through the same thing, denial, denial, denial. No, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm not, the, you know, I'm not dealing with that. And and then you finally come to a point where you have to start thinking, actually, maybe this is something. And then you sort of go, no, actually, no, it's not. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And and then yeah, you get to that that point where you have to actually convince yourself you are not okay, and um, you know you've got people around you saying that they don't think you're okay, and you're convincing them that you're okay, but you're not really. Um, and it comes to that letting down that barrier and um, convincing yourself that you are not okay, and that is the hardest part. It's like with an alcoholic or a, you know, a drug addict, you've got to admit that you've got a problem before you can actually, you know, get help for it and um, until that point comes. And I think that's normal. I think it's normal to to deflect it and, and deny it for such a long time. I think it's part of the process, part of the grieving process as well for everything that you that you've gone through. So, yeah, definitely. Um how are you feeling now? So you obviously said that, you know, it's been two years, Henry's two years about two years old, and you're only just in the last two months realizing that you've got PTSD. So how's what does the rest of your journey look like? How are you how do you feel like things are are going in your journey, recovery journey? I've, I've made some pretty big um bounds and leaps just this last few weeks. I was able to um the the gynecologist I see locally I was actually able to get up on a bed and put my legs into stirrups with that completely collapsing which was pretty great um I've actually been able to open a conversation with my husband about potentially having another child mm-hmm. um he obviously has tried a few times and it just immediately gets shut down but we're actually it's actually a, a serious conversation now that the, the potential of having a second child which is I think for me a pretty great thing because I I think for the longest time I said don't ever speak to me about having another child um but I think for me for me now I think the fact that it for the longest time I needed the validity I needed somebody of 
you know, a psychotherapist or a gynecologist, somebody to say, yeah, what happened to you was, was really awful because you can tell everybody what happened and everybody goes, yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. But when somebody who like a, like a gynecologist was probably when she said to me, she, the, the, the gynecologist actually said to me, please don't ever have a natural birth again. And I it was really upset by that because I thought, well, I missed out first time around. But she yeah. said, yeah, she said, please. So that to me, that was a bit of a, a hard pill to swallow. But um, I think moving forward, I don't want to tell my story anymore for sympathy or or anything like that. I want to tell it because I feel like there's not enough education around uh, not so much things that can go wrong because things can go wrong at any point, any time, but the education around the choices that you do and don't have. Like I didn't know until until this awful thing happened to me and two years later that I didn't, I could have just been left alone with my midwives. And, it, and it's quite heartbreaking that I had to experience this to go looking for the information. I mean, I was pregnant for nine months and for nine months people spoke to me about breastfeeding and healthy breastfeeding and you know, SIDS and all of this really great stuff that you need to know. But there was no discussion about, you know, my, the power that I have and the choices I have the minute I go into that birthing suite. And, you know, I, I, a friend of mine had a a home birth um, a couple of months after I had Henry and she, they don't induce the midwives that she was dealing with. They just let you go. and, and, And I thought to myself, what? Like, um, and then I remember after she had her child, she didn't talk to me for a couple of days and I was really taken aback. But it was because she had her baby in about 45 minutes on her bedroom floor and she didn't want to tell me that yeah. she had this really great easy birth, didn't even make it into the pool. But, um, yeah, so so my, my journey from here is to obviously continue to get myself as much support as I can. Um, I see my psychotherapist once a week because I feel like I'm still working through uh, I'm still working through acknowledging what I'm dealing with, like the sensory overloads. That's a new a new thing for me to, to work out. So, um, yeah. And then to just try and share my story and help anybody that, you know, yeah, help anybody that I can understand that there are choices when you go into, when you go and have a baby. And there's, yeah, there's education out there and I want to be a part of it because I just can't imagine this happening to anybody else. Yeah, I do think everything that you've said today will help at at, will help at least one person. I'd be very surprised if it was only one person. You know, Mm -hmm. I I can guarantee you that there are people who are feeling the same way, and listening to your story might help them take that next step and acknowledge that they're not okay. And so that's that's hopefully what this episode aims for is is for that. Sorry, can I just yeah. can I just say one more thing? I just um I just wanna like after you have a baby, don't let anybody tell you that it's just hormonal, it's normal after you've had a baby. If you don't think that you're okay, don't let anybody try to convince you that it's normal to feel that way after having a baby. Yeah. Because I think that's a little bit of what happened to me at the beginning was so many people around me just said it's hormonal and it's the changes that happened in your body and this is what happens when you're a new mum. Like, yes, a lot of it probably is but um I don't think that anybody has any right to tell you that you're okay you didn't really have a traumatic birth your birth you know what I mean like nobody gets to tell you that you feel the way you feel for a reason and I think um yeah if you're not okay just reach out to somebody I really cannot wish that I had done it earlier I think yeah 
I wouldn't be where I am two years later had I have dealt with it a lot sooner. Yeah, but hindsight's a beautiful thing, you know. If we all had hindsight, it would be <laughs> it would be great. Mm. And I'm also a bit of a advocate for. I don't think you need a GP, a professional, to diagnose you with um, postnatal depression. Mm. I think you know yourself the best, the most. You know your body. You know everything about your mental health. You are the person that's thinking everything that you're thinking. You don't need a professional to tell you that you have postnatal depression. You are that person to decide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that was a struggle with, you know, saying have you people would say, have you been to your GP? I'm like, well, why? Why do mm-hmm. I need to go to my GP? Um, I'm seeing psychologists, I'm seeing the people that I need to see. Why do I need to get my GP involved unless I need medication? What are they just going to officially diagnose me? But I know that I have it. Why do I need to see them? So that was a bit funny for me. And I think people people can self-diagnose it. It's, it's you know, that you know your body, you know how your brain works and you don't need someone to tell you what you already know, really. Yeah. So, yeah. I agree. Yeah, well, Jenna, thank you so much for telling your story. Um, It sounds as though you were very ready to tell it and I hope that by sharing it and being able to go back and listen to your episode, it might um, help you in your journey for recovery as well. So, you know, we all know that talking about it definitely helps Um, and, you know, there's people out there who will, be so thankful for you for sharing your story so thank you very much thank you thank you for having me I really appreciate this opportunity to be able to tell my story (laughs) yeah my pleasure my pleasure thank you for joining in for another episode of let's talk pnd and I hope you all enjoyed that podcast today it's lovely to hear from Jenna and listen to her postnatal journey If you'd like to share your story, please get in touch. The email is down below or you can get in contact through my Instagram page. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Bye.